0: Let's get, let's get into
1: this. Let's do it. Someone told me once that there's no such thing as luck. You make decisions all the time without being conscious of it. Like you move, you move before you realize you're darting to avoid an oncoming truck. Or you walk toward a car before you realize the voice you hear is a stranger's and it isn't calling your name. Or maybe these things aren't accidents at all. Maybe they're just the beginning of a long chain of events that you set in motion yourself. Maybe you set it in motion before you were even old enough to remember, playing in the car while your mother's driving, hearing what happened next, opening your eyes when they should have remained closed, seeing something you should never have seen, moving when you should have stood still, standing still when you should have run. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. We are your hosts, John Cribbs and Christopher Funderburg, and we are in book mode this evening. Chris, what book are we going to be talking about today? We are talking about a book
0: called Generation Loss by Elizabeth Hand. Now, John, this is a book that you picked, and I did not know a single thing about it when you said, let's do this for the podcast. I'm not familiar with the author at all. I didn't know even what genre the book belonged to. You know, I know we normally do crime and sci-fi for this book, are, uh, crime, sci-fi, and a little bit of horror for the, for the book podcast. So I assumed it would be in one of those genres. I sort of assumed it would be supernatural horror. Uh, why did you pick this book? How did it get brought to your attention? What's your background with it? Let me ask you.
1: So the reason I wanted to get into this book was because Elizabeth Hand, amongst all the other genres that she has you know, tried out, she is a novelizer. She wrote the novelization of 12 Monkeys, specifically, and a few others. And I've always enjoyed her writing in her novelizations. I think she's really talented. She is more talented than some and as talented as others. I think that she seemed like someone who would be a really good original storyteller. So I've always wanted to get into her stuff. And this one specifically came up because when I read the synopsis, it sounded a lot like the kind of subgenre of uh, a fiction that I really enjoy which is a film that's about a, a, an artist or a reclusive artist and once we get into it I this this the film or the book really springboards off of the idea of a book that we've already discussed on this podcast the burnt orange heresy by Charles Willowford has that same kind of scenario where it's someone going out to find this artist who hasn't done any work in years but has sort of a, a myth a legend based around them because their art was so influential and kind of trying to find out just why they stopped producing art, what they're doing now, what the whole story is, and their own background and damage, you know, kind of come, come into play a lot. So I was and intrigued by that.
0: It's a subgenre I've heard you refer to before as the absent artist genre, uh, subgenre. And it's something I know you like a lot. As soon as I started reading it, you know, like a couple chapters and it's like, oh, this is John's interest in this book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely that. And I like too, that it makes a kind of an interesting twist in the middle of it where it doesn't exactly go where you would expect it if you've read this kind of book before and kind of, you know, plays, plays loosely with everyone's roles and everything kind of gets changed and you learn new things as it kind of reaches its climax. So it was definitely a fun and twisty book. So I'm glad that I finally got into it. What did you think?
0: Um, I think we, I think that's a a longer, difficult discussion. And I, we normally on the, the book podcast, we do an aperitif pairing to bring you into the book. Uh, before it, where it can be, we, we pick something to pair with the book, an album, a painting, a photograph, a piece of music, another book, a movie, anything to pair with it going into for an aperitif. And then on the way out, we do a dessert pairing. And I think we should just go ahead and do our uh, uh, aperitif pairings for this before we dig into the book. Right.
1: I appreciate that you want to keep the audience in suspense when it comes to your opinion on the book. So yes, let's do that first. Okay, why don't you go first? What do you have? So I think my pick is pretty obvious. It's something that gets name-dropped in the book, but uh, especially when it goes into the prologue and we're meeting this that, character.
0: That doesn't narrow it down. Something That's that true. got name-dropped in the That's book. True,
1: you, well, several things get name-dropped, but I think the thing that she wants you to be thinking of, if you, you know kind of know the, the, the culture, is uh, Blank Generation, which is a monograph by Roberta uh, Bailey. And that was a mid-70s collection of photographs of the Bowery scene, right? The, 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 the punk scene in New York, Richard Hell, Iggy Pop, Blondie, Johnny Thunders, Ramones, all those people are found in this book. It does not have, you know, some of the more gruesome images that uh, the hero of this book, you know, includes in her monograph, but I think you're definitely supposed to be thinking about that and maybe listening to television's Marquee Boone as you're leafing through the pictures of Roberta Bailey's book, at least at the beginning where you kind of, you kind of, find out where this person is coming from, the kind of scene that they're coming from. So it makes sense to me to just kind of leaf through some of these pictures and kind of get an idea of her background and where she's coming from at the time. Makes sense, right?
0: Yes, I think it does make sense. Although one thing I do want to say at the beginning is I don't like knowing anything about a writer or their background or, or anything. I really believe in the, the Remedias Varo idea of like the artwork should be it and anything about the artist is getting in the way of my artwork. So I don't want you to know anything about me. I have a tendency to, to really, uh, to, to really believe in that and not want to know biography and not want to have biography substitute for analysis with this book. I felt for reasons we'll get into particularly unwilling to know anything about elizabeth hand the writer and i really didn't want to know anything about her or where she was coming from or who she was once especially about you know a quarter of the way through this book i very much had that feeling
1: of does knowing she wrote the 12 monkeys novelization now spoil everything for you
0: no it doesn't although it's it's interesting it's certainly an interesting fact about her i don't know what else she's written i never heard of her before this i don't know how much she's written i don't know all i know is that she can't be that well known if i've never heard of her and that will tie into sort of why i didn't want to know more about the author later but for my aperitif pairing i picked um the album Bedtime for Democracy by the Dead Kennedys, right? Mm-hmm. This is, this is uh, their last studio album. It's their fourth studio album, and it's made in 1986. And this book we're talking about today is very much steeped in the New York, the classic New York punk scene. A lot of references to places like Max's Kansas City and all of that stuff you read about you know, in the in the very classic New York CBGBs, the Bowery punk scene. Bedtime for Democracy is, um, the Dead Kennedys as a punk band were always very uh, opposed. They were critical of the punk scene from the beginning. And this album as their last album as sort of the classic era of punk has been over for a while. And it's clearly passing towards its, its total death throes in some way, um, is, has a few songs, particularly Anarchy for Sale and Chicken Chick Conformist, that are about how nostalgia for um, scenes, for musical scenes, for art scenes, for the way this nostalgia gets repackaged and resold to people, and the way people want to submit to the ideals of even uh, a form that supposedly with punk music, all about rebellion, that, that what you can see by 86 and what they're critiquing is that punk has its own systems of conformity. Uh, and a lot of people devote themselves to a conformity of rebelliousness. And that's particularly even by 86 being sold as you know, the great era that was happening and is now over. You know the scene that won't freeze in 1983. You know and keeps going. And you even see that now. There's still people walking around dressing and acting like you know, uh, like the Sex Pistols just put their first album out. You know what I mean? And I think that that the album's very smart about seeing through the most empty parts of of punk music and what punk meant and seeing through the people who really believed, uh, or not who really believed then, but by eight, by 86 are still trying to sell it back to you. And how much the scene and how much punk from the beginning was overrun by, you know, uh, Malcolm McLaren's, who were just putting together boy bands to sell clothes, you know. And I think that it's, it's an album that's, it's definitely not their best album. I don't think anybody would put it as one of their best albums and, and has more hits than misses and is also an expression of that creative exhaustion of the scene of sort of realizing there's nowhere to go with this music anymore except selling the past back to, to fans and to new generations. That it's becoming, you know, it's the snake oil they're starting to sell. Uh, that that punk music is, is very much becoming a... a a capitalist machine uh, thing, you know, that it's, you know, the way pop culture functions, especially in America, is that it repackages nostalgia and sells it back to yourselves. And nostalgia that you never even experienced yourself, it repackages and sells this thinned out, meaningless version of it. And so I think, you know, listen to that album before you read this book. And uh, I'm certainly always in a dead Kennedy's mindset and not you know, uh, a public image limited mindset, you know, not a Ramones mindset. I'm always in a dead Kennedys one. Uh, and so that's where I'm coming from to the sort of endless parade of.
1: I've seen you in a Ramones mindset before, to be fair. <laughs> really? Sure. When I in a Ramones mindset. I think when you're at your giddy, more giddy and, you know, kind of when you're, when you're reviewing Malignant, for example, I felt like you were in a, a Ramones.
0: Mindset. No, I'm channeling Biafra always.
1: <laughs> I just uh, watched, you know, his cameo from Tapeheads again last night it always makes me very happy. <laughs> it's delightful. It's delightful. Um, no, yeah, that's good. That, that's good. Since, you know, one of the themes I think of the book and certainly the background of the character that, you know, kind of opens it up is this idea that these things really are fleeting. These mo these movements, these artistic statements that have just kind of come and go, you know, even something as uh, revered as the punk scene in the seventies in New York and something that's still emulated, of course, in fashion and, and music is something that was very short and, you know, uh, immediately distilled by, you know, kind of commercialization and all the kind of things that, you know, we yeah, were talking but about.
0: I think the dead Kennedys also have an amount of, I think we were all sold a load of shit to begin with. And we were, and us, even the dead Kennedys, were part of selling you a load of shit. And yeah. that it was always all a load of shit. And that if it can be that exploited by by capitalism and by all of the things it's supposedly event against, if it's rebellion can be tamed so easily in the t-shirt slogans, bye bye, bye from the circle A, right? If you mm-hmm. can just turn it into this meaningless pop cultural crap, then maybe it was not anything to start with. If it can just be that, if it's that flimsy, it's defenses against uh, the sort of empty consumerism are so feeble that it didn't mean anything to begin with. That was all just a bunch of people who wanted gallery shows and to become famous and to sell their clothes and get rich, you know?
1: I do. I do. I also think it's interesting that I don't think the I think the Ramones are one of the few bands that don't get name dropped in this book, even though there are they get they are the named, favorite band.
0: No, they get name dropped a lot.
1: The Ramones do. Yes. Oh yeah. She's She's flipping through the CD She but, yeah. also
0: says, "I have a D.D. Ramones mindset," and then she says, "Hey ho!" Every time she's getting geared hey, up ho. to do something, yes. it's the Ramones are all over this, and the Ramones are objectively like the the most commercialized version of punk music. They're the thing that's going to be in National Lampoon's movies and suburban moms are going to buy little onesies for their kids with the Ramones shirt. You know, I think more people own that Ramones shirt now than own Ramones albums. I think they probably sold more merch than they've sold records at this point in their career.
1: No, you're probably right. You're right. The, it, she does name drop the Ramones quite a bit, which is interesting because what we do in this book is head up to Maine, the stomping ground of one Stephen King, who is a huge Ramones fan and yes. even adapted the Hey Ho into, I think it was Pet Cemetery. is one of his big books. Uh, gets the Hey Ho from the Ramones, gets name dropped quite and a bit. And
0: then the Ramones also wrote a song for Pet Cemetery.
1: They also wrote the song Pet Cemetery.
0: <laughs> yes, after seeing the movie. <laughs> uh, and wrote the song specifically for it, if I'm getting that correctly. I don't think it's that they read the book. I think they, I think they saw- No, no, that right? was for
1: the movie, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, they, I think that was a separate thing. I think they simply didn't want to be buried in a pet cemetery and wrote a song about it and it just happened to coincide with the theme of the book and the movie. So
0: they actually, used it. I Actually, Terrence Rafferty describes them as, uh, I, what's the exact phrase, but the best uh, fake dumb band of all time. And oh, I think yeah, that's really... the monkeys were monkeys fake dumb. I guess they were, <laughs> I guess they're, I mean, I certainly like the monkeys more than I like the Ramones just in case anybody's curious about my actual <laughs> musical taste. I take sunshine pop and bubblegum pop 10 times out of 10 over any punk album. Um, that's uh and heart before, before the sex pistols for me every single time. But, um, Yeah yeah can so let's jump back before we get too far into the book. Um, what's what's tell me more about the absent artist genre. What do you like about it? What are the hey, best I ones?
1: I don't want to get into that in this honestly. I because you know, because it's, it's just been something I've been working on for so long and I don't want to dwell on that too much. I'd rather just get into the book.
0: Okay. I That's will, right. I will take you demurring from it. I will yeah, take just... you demurring from it. We will talk more about it, about it later. I guess my dessert pairing is an absent artist film and I can discuss it a little bit in the, uh, in the dessert pairing. Um, and so beyond sort of broad strokes, how much did you know about the book going into it? Did you know,
1: did you, what it, did you know what it was going to be in this way? Like what, it, what did you know? I knew so little about this book that on page 220 of this 260 page book, I still wasn't sure if it was going to go straight up horror at the end or not. Uh, at the time, I didn't know that, it, you know, this character, Cas Neary, you know, uh, is in other books that she's written, that this is the first of a series of books with her. I had no idea if it was more of a crime book than a, a horror or, a, you know, a, even a little bit fantasy. I, I didn't know where it was going. So <laughs> I went into it pretty blind all things considered, I just knew, hey, the writer of the X-Files, movies, novelizations, you know, has got some original books I'd like to check out.
0: Interesting. I I assumed it was going to be horror supernatural because the and artist genre almost always is, you know, mm-hmm. just a movie like Ma- Ninth Gate or In the Mouth of Madness. Cigarette burns, you know, abs and artist movies. They're almost always supernatural, you know? And so that's, yeah. I, I assumed where it was going until I noticed my copy of it. I got an electronic edition and the cover of it. I, lo- I glanced at the cover when I was about halfway through and it says, Generation Loss, a crime novel. On it, and I was like, "Oh, so I guess this is just a crime novel." And I gotta my get edition that of idea. it has
1: so, has an endorsement by George Pelicano. So I was like, "Oh, maybe it is a crime book more than <laughs> a horror one." Uh, but I, but 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 there are non-horror absent artists works. Like I said, Charles Williford's "Burnt Orange Heresy," which she true. she must have read because I mean, she even makes she even refers to a character having an alcoholic breath like burnt orange. So. I think that she's definitely aware of that story and definitely was inspired and you know used it as a springboard to kind of start you know her story and then take it in her own direction. So I, there are definitely stories out there that you know are not specifically horror, but certainly have very kind of genre-based you know ideas about this theme, which is this idea that there is this person who has disappeared or died long ago who the protagonist you know has been like has affected their life their artwork has affected their life in a way that is very very poignant and has brought brought up very often in the story and that that person has been kind of looking for this person through their artwork their whole life and so going to actually meet the person becomes a big event for them and kind of sets things off where it's like everything i thought for the years and years that I've been looking at this person's reading this person's work novels or looking at their paintings or their f- photographs. Now it's all going to kind of culminate in some way significantly in my life when I actually come face to face with them. And this, you know, person Cass Neary who just to try to start getting into the plot or we, yeah, I was going to
0: say, more? take, take us through the plot, John. Her name bit. is
1: Cassandra Neary. She is a, uh, she makes her way to the East village when she's young, she becomes a prodigy when she's 20 years old, taking pictures of, people at CBGBs, famous people, but also of Johnny Thunders, P- Johnny, photos of Johnny Thunders hanging out in the background. But at the same time, she also includes in her book, Lost Girls. Uh, sorry. She also includes in her book, Dead Girls, photographs of junkie bo- junkies bodies who are, you know, in the alley, uh, lots of gritty stuff because she finds herself drawn to damage, as she puts it, you know, she's drawn to to death and self-destruction. And this particular scene boasts a lot of that, the scene in the, again, the, the Bowery scene, the lost generation. So she becomes the sort of Roberta Bailey crossed with Ouija type photographer where she is showing things on the street, but she, Joel per, Peter Witkin. Yeah. Yeah. Pro, Joe, pro pre Joe, Joel Peter Witkin, but she, she burns out very quickly. She's not able to get another book deal. I will point out. It's weird that, my wife, Jordana Kalman, is a photographer and her stepmother's name is Linda Kalman. And that's the name of the woman who ends up publishing Cass's book and it really weirded me out. I I, I was going to ask you about Jordy later
0: on and if you've been talking to her about this book because I I dare you to
1: have Jordy read this book. John. Oh, I want her to read it. Yeah, I'm really curious about it. In fact, I feel like we blew it by not having her guest on this episode after reading the book. But, uh, but yeah, no, there's actually a lot that made me think about Jordy. As, we re- as I was reading this. But anyway, so Cass, she flames out. She kind of burns through a lot of relationships. The one really meaningful relationship she has with this other woman, the woman uh, dies in the 9-11 attacks and that really sets Cass down an abyss of you know drug addiction and alcoholism. She uh, works at the Strand, which I'll just take this uh, minute to say, fuck the Strand, fuck Nancy Bass Wyden and all those shitheads over there. But anyway, she works in the stock room <laughs> at the Strand. Uh, that's, a, then, that's an
0: official pink smoke position. Don't let my yeah. kind of delighted silence there make you think that I'm taking a different position. Go
1: on. Let, let's definitely put a big asterisk on that footnote. Pink smoke official stance. Fuck Nancy Bass Wyden. She works at the Strand and she hangs up her camera, does not do photography and just kind of waste her days until she is given an assignment to go up to... Uh, to Maine to find this legendary photographer whose name is Aphrodite Kamastos
0: Kamastos Aphrodite Kamastos
1: She uh, is responsible for two of the most influential photography books, and she has since not done anything. So they want to say they, they say that uh, the the guy who she, who hooks up with the assignment basically tells her she is a big fan of you, or she requested you to come and do this exclusive interview. For like Mojo, I think it is, something like some magazine. Yeah, Mojo, magazine.
0: the British film magazine. I know what Mojo is. Yeah. Um, Yes, me, a washed up former photographer. She asked for me by name and I've got to go to this small island in Maine and meet her.
1: Right, when she's not ventured out of the city, right? For 20 some years or whatever. But she's got to go on this road trip. She and decides... she's also,
0: to be clear, she's a totally, she was a, a never was. She had a very brief flash of fame where Dead Girls was... Uh, popular for like a year or two. By the time of her second book, No Dice, she throws her life away being a a punk rock fuck up and is just sort of living no sort of interesting life whatsoever. So this request for her is completely out of the blue. And the guy who brings it to her is an old friend that she finds to be not very serious person and kind of not super trustworthy. But she has nothing else going on. So she gets a -a rent-a-wreck, and heads up to Maine.
1: I'll just say it's so depressing when she talks about her book not getting a second printing. You know, the, the idea that, like, no, this is not worth you know putting back in front of people is a really depressing thing to think about. When you think about all the things that get, you know, multiple printings throughout the years, it's definitely kind of a flame out kind of situation for, you know, a photographer when they say, no one wants to see this shit anymore. It's done. You know, your, your, your stuff is dead. So that's, you know, that's the position she's in. So she heads up there. And it, at that point, it kind of crosses over a little bit into folk horror, a little bit. You get kind of a Wicker Man situation where there's something sinister going on in this town, this island town of Maine. And I, did I write it down at all? Do you have the name? Isn't it? Uh, oh, uh, Peswegas, right? Peswegas. Peswegas. Yeah. It's like this archipelago of islands, like off the Archipelago? Coast of It's like this archipelago. What is it? Archipelago. It's like this archipelago of islands (laughs) off of the coast of Maine. She travels up to Paswegus, Maine, which is, you know, this archipelago of islands off the coast of Maine. And there's something about it that's very, you know, exclusive and very reclusive. They they don't trust outsiders. A lot of the guys there seem like, you know, real scummy weirdos. And she finds out from people that this photographer, Aphrodite, that she's coming up to see was involved in some kind of a weird cult for several years, that she had a a commune near her house over on the island. And everything seems super, super seedy, even though they say, ah, it's just a bunch of hippie shit, orgies and fun and drugs and whatever. There's clearly something weird that happened at some point. And so when she finally makes it over to the island and introduces herself, she finds out that Aphrodite has no idea who she is never heard of this guy Phil Cohen who sent her up there's no interview with Mojo she's aware of so she doesn't know how the hell she got up there and that's where things kind of take a turn in terms of the mystery aspect of the book where you meet some more characters and 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 then the b- main question becomes like how did she end up up there and now what is she going to find out
0: and also as she's going up there there's a lot made of she's seeing uh missing persons posters, that there's a lot of missing persons going missing around here and pets going missing and dead animals uh, around. And what is the reason for these dead pets and missing people up there? And sort of what's happened is, is looming around the outside of it uh, as well, um, which again, you know, ends up obviously what it builds to, it ends up Uh, tying these, these different threads together in a, um, in, you know, because what, what else could it do? Why would you be talking about somebody gone missing if you weren't going to tie it into your, your crime novel story? Um, I, um, I want to get out of the way at the front. I, I don't want to be rude about this book, right? Um, when I like, goof on uh on like harlan ellison and i make fun of him by saying he's like a real life garth merengue right of dark place his status is secure right like i can make fun of harlan ellison all day and he deserves some of it and i still like his books and nothing's going to happen to his books it's never going to damage his reputation in a million years there's there's sometimes people that you know uh good authors or even right hand read, you know, that's a book that is secure in it's cult status to kind of knock the wind out of it in some way. You know, sometimes things need to be punctured. Sometimes things need to be opposed. Sometimes you just need to say some funny things and have fun at the expense of, of even interesting and valued artworks. And if their status is secure, I don't feel bad doing that with an unknown author like this. I, I don't want to make jokes about it, right?
1: And it feels- You had no such compunctions about Barry Sadler. Just want to bring that up.
0: Yeah, but Barry Sadler deserves it. (laughs) Also Barry Sadler in his own way is is a classic author. Um, Also part of the fun of what will keep Barry Sadler's books alive is people enjoying them for their ludicrousness too. That will keep those books alive. It doesn't, it, it, it feels less fair for me to critique this book and be cruel about it, is what I want to say. Um, it, it just doesn't, it feels like I owe the author, because she's not as well known, uh, an extremely honest, straightforward, extremely negative review. And I don't want to shy away from that just because I feel bad for the author in some way about how much I dislike this book. I know how hard it is to write a book and get it published and get it out into the world. Uh, And especially when you are uh, a lesser known, probably more, I mean, maybe this is a New York Times bestseller and I can cram all this up my ass, but I'd be very surprised to hear that. It just, even that, even if it is a New York Times bestseller, it's not at the level where I feel like I can sort of make fun at its expense. And I will tell you that really is a lot of my response to it. It's just so incredibly name-droppy for one, like we mentioned. I mean, you can't go a page... Without her mentioning Robert Maplethorpe or Hunter S. Thompson or the Beats. I, but there's not, but there's not a single even mildly deep cut in all of the talk of Marquee Moon and Max's Kansas City and untitled film stills. It's just all fucking references to the most basic shit, like Talking Heads lyrics and public image. Limited, you know, it's just very, very rough sledding to put up with this non-stop referential stuff that's trying to conjure up this era uh, of New York and this sort of nostalgia for New York art scenes that I'm very unsympathetic to to begin with. That's stuff that's a nostalgia that I don't share and I don't like, but is also the most basic kind of nostalgia. It's a, it's the very popular kind of nostalgia too. Like everybody reads Please Kill Me and wishes, you know, they were at fucking CBGBs, you know? It's just like, that's that's how it
1: is. If I can interject by, I hate to jump to the end of the book, but do you feel at all that maybe because the end has the sentiment of all those artists who, you know, everyone loves and who, you know, are so revered and so safe, in, in, in their reputation, none of them went far enough and they're all a bunch of phonies. Like that, did that do anything for to qualify name dropping for you?
0: No, because I feel like this book is, the writing is so bad that whatever thematic aesthetic goals it means to accomplish with its bad choices, I have to disregard because it's just not written well enough for me to want to cut it any slack if there is supposed to be a reflective or ironic or uh, even sarcastic sardonic commentary on the constant name dropping of this main character, the character isn't written with enough specificity and interest for me to to want to uh, cut it slack in that way, for me to want to feel complex meaning in it. It feels like bottomlessly name droppy is all it feels to me like. It just feels like it's trying to set the mood by referencing all of these really basic shit and all of this really basic stuff in a way, right? Mm. And the reason I didn't want to know anything about the author is because when I got into it a little bit, the author's voice is very, very present because the character has no voice whatsoever. The author's voice completely consumes it's written in the first person of Cass Neary, but I don't have any sense of Cass Neary as a character. She's not a convincing character at all. She's a very empty paint by numbers character who has sort of bizarrely paint by numbers trauma. And then that insane 9-11 detour, which is like we'll talk about that whole thing later to just it just feels like it feels like. 9-11, referencing 9-11 feels like name dropping the Ramones. It just feels like another hmm. New York City thing to name drop, you know, that shows you were in New York and you were there uh, in some way. And so I realized when I was reading it, my sense of the author became important to me because this book was either written by like a 23-year-old woman who is romanticizing something they know nothing about and weren't there for, right? Right. Or it was a middle aged woman who lived through it all, right? But has no ability to imbue any of it with any sense of veracity or lived experience, right? I think these are the only two options. You, you could tell me this is somebody's literal autobiography that Elizabeth Neary is a pseudonym for Cass Neary and that Elizabeth Hand is a pseudonym for Cass Neary and that this really happened to her and it would still feel fake to me. It would still feel completely false and phony. It feels like bad scene bullshit. If you've ever been in a music scene, there's just like the fake phonies you meet and punk is particularly uh, like late seventies New York punk, particularly attracts a kind of of total falseness about what it was that this book um, has, and it's like this self pitying, like it burned out in a flash and it never really meant anything, maybe, and it was just about damage and self destruction. It's this very what I always say. And look, you know, I don't talk about this much on here. My best friend died of a heroin overdose when he was thirty. I've been around a lot of drug addicts. I've been around a lot of sex workers. This is just like the background I come out of. I've been around a lot of musicians, too, and touring musicians who are famous, and that's what their jobs are, right? And I have never met a heroin addict who didn't, in the back of their head, want to have the plan of, when I'm done with this, I'm going to write a book about it and how fucked up and crazy my life was. That's why every asshole who's ever done heroin does it because they want to like talk about how crazy things got and how out of control my life is. That is just what the people who do that drug do. It's its only purpose. It's the worstly satisfying drug in the world. It's purely so they can do that. And this book feels like it was written by somebody who did like heroin-like four times so they could write this fucking book. You know what I mean? This is what this book feels like to me, is that just somebody who wants to be completely, it feels like a total lie. And I was thinking about like, why don't I like this book, right? Like, what do I think is so bad about its style? Because it's very well written in a sort of objective way. You know, like it has a very strong command of language in a way that something like Stephen King does not. Right. And the other thing that really bothers me about this book is that it's written in this fucking MFA style of writing that they just teach people in every modern book is written exactly like this book in this fucking MFA MFA style. There, every author you read that's new has this graduate degree way of writing, which is another reason I think the author is either like a young person almost definitely a woman just because of the way this book positions its gender politics are very classic second wave feminist kind of worldview. It has a very readable politic about femininity and how it relates to the arts, right? And And a very standard decades old sense of that politics at this point. So it's either somebody who just got out of an MFA program, right? Or it's somebody who's like an academic who's fucking lived in one for years. Like it's got to be one of those two things because it's so steeped in that kind of language. And if you're not the current kind of person who's in arts academia, you don't know how inescapable this writing voice is, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very inescapable approach to writing. It's incredibly overwritten. It's very description and description metaphor heavy. Um, And and, you know, I guess there's some chance that this person got an MFA back in the early 80s after they got out of the punk scene and 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 hung around but I don't think they went and lived a real life. I don't, this wasn't written by somebody who went and worked on an oil rig or was a lawyer for 20 years or was even a professional photographer. It just wasn't. It was written by somebody who's in arts academia in some fundamental way down in their soul. It's, it's like, it's written like a manual you would get from one of these authors. And, and, and I will tell you 10 pages in, I was dreading it because it's just, It's something I've read before, and it doesn't matter who wrote it. It's just a total absence of creative voice that is just induced by a very specific approach to learning about and being taught writing. And I will tell you the fucking killer for me on all of this is, is all of those people love Maine for some reason. They all fucking love Maine. And they all love New England. And I have no idea what it is. You go and get an MFA and they tell you about fucking Woods Hole. And that's, you know, and you're going up to Wellfleet and that's, and they all love Maine. They all love Maine. And this book has definitely got that like academic who loves Maine, you know, there's no denying that's what this fucking thing is. But ultimately, you know, this book is perfectly tasteful. (laughs) This book is Ikea furniture. It is perfectly tasteful and utterly generic, right? And it's so weird to me to make a book about a punk rock fuck up and have it be so completely adult contemporary in nature, right? This book is like a Melissa Etheridge song. That's what this book is like. And that stuff is fine, I guess. Except if like Melissa Etheridge was writing songs about like doing heroin on the Bowery, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I think this is a bad match of subject matter and form, you know, just to have, you know, I I don't know, man, I'm, this is all a lot of, a lot of wind up for it. But I feel like, I feel like I have to justify myself because this author, they're just not well known enough for me to feel like they deserve it with both barrels like this, you know, and I feel more like they're a symptom of a larger problem I have with how writing is done and how arts is approached in this century than specifically this author. She's just like, it's too generic for me. That's what it is. It's too generic for me to want to single Elizabeth Hand out as a bad writer, right? It's, it's, she hasn't done enough as a writer and an author to deserve to be negative about her. And the one thing I will say the the only time the book is truly truly bad for me is when she's describing the artworks themselves like the imaginary artworks within the book and then the writing shifts into this awful critical like literary quarterly voice that is just it makes every single artwork she's describing sound fucking terrible but it's this very just literary quarterly kind of approach to describing the 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 photography of Aphrodite's comestos that's overblown and lacking in insight and just uh, just this very precious twee language for describing art that any artist would hate to hear their art described this way.
1: Um, I can see why you didn't want to start off with how you felt about the book.
0: (laughs) I mean, this book is full of howlers though, man. There's some lines in this book that I I didn't write them down, but it's like when the the agent doesn't want to publish her second book and the agent says like, it's too much like being inside someone's head. And she replies, yeah, mine. It's like, oh my God, dude. (laughs) John, what's your spirit animal? Mine's a dolphin eternal fun in the sun and yours <laughs> dd Dee Dee ramon i said it's uh, just token like an animal
1: right it's not a spirit animal. But anyway
0: it's just it's just there's some fucking howlers in this thing dude you know um and the and the only other thing i'll say about its about its style i'm just monologuing because i actually feel bad and nervous to say all this for some reason i feel very nervous critiquing this book um it's, it's the last book we talked about was uh, Simenon's uh, uh, A Man's Head, right? And to compare this book to Simenon is really not fair because Simenon's so much a better writer. You know, it's really, it's really cruel to do that to anybody, to compare your crime novel to somebody like Simenon. But Simenon, one of the things we talk about in A Man's Head is how he manages to find the perfect line and in one line set an entire scene with the description. That's just one line of description and it sets the entire scene perfectly. This book describes every single fucking room they walk into In such incredible detail, every article of clothing anybody's wearing, every outside of every building, every window gets described, any vehicle they go near, any anything they do gets described in such incredible detail. And it doesn't conjure anything for me. It becomes a slog to just be reading about like the bookcase in this hotel room or the stove that's in the in the shelves that are on the, the lower deck of the boat they're on it's just such an incredible amount of description and all of it overwritten you know things are like the island looked like the the of uh, humpback whale breaching you know just all of this again it's that mfa style of find your descriptive metaphor that they're told to do you know and 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 find your your evocative description It's just it's so over described, you know, and it's and this book really suffers from showing not telling the only time it comes alive for me is at the end when we find out both who's behind the absence of this artist and their way and what, what's happening to, to the missing girls. And it becomes plot heavy for like two two or three chapters. And that's the only time the book works to me is when she doesn't take time to endlessly describe every single fucking thing in it. And she only finds the amazing descriptions like the black water that the girls tied up in and realizing there's a bunch of snapping turtles in it, right? She only finds the really powerful descriptions at that point and dispenses with the rest because she's focused. Focused on plot the the rest of the book virtually nothing happens you get 100 pages into this book and it's just descriptions of these little bars in maine and shit you know hmm.
1: i feel like the only way we can move forward is if i play devil's advocate on <laughs> go this, for I it because you clearly
0: liked it you know which is you you clearly liked it and got a lot out of it so please do play devil's i advocate.
1: mean i certainly have my you know criticisms of it
0: would I you argue. admit would you admit one thing yeah, that okay. this book is powerfully fucking uncool that it is just <laughs> so so extremely whack
1: Yeah but I think I don't think that this book is trying to be as cool as you think it is I I don't I don't think Elizabeth Hand looks at Cassandra Neri as someone who you're supposed to think like yeah the, this rock star She doesn't give a shit, you know, and you know, I don't think that I at least I don't think that either. I think it's supposed to be she's so damaged and she blew
0: everything she had. It's the self it's the self pitying version of cool, though. It's it's the heroin addict self pitying version of my self destruction is awesome. My self-destruction is sympathetic. I, self, I agree. My self-destruction some, yeah. is interesting and her self-destruction is not interesting because it's totally generic. And that's inspiring. what
1: I like about it. I like that her self-destruction is not interesting. I think I agree that the PTSD from you know, living in 70s New York and having a lover killed in 9-11 is a little heavy handed and a little cheesy. But I, what I like mainly about her characterization of Cass is that Cass is a survivor of that time and doesn't really know what the fuck else to do? That she's spent the last several decades of her life working at a fucking bookstore. And when she's supposed to go out there and socialize with people and be in the world, she is a, a total blank. She is a generation loss, which you know is explained in the book is you know what happens when you endlessly reproduce a photographic image. She is, you know, a but poor this is all copy of what she wanted to be, what she what she wanted to be when she was 20 years old. I like this
0: is there in an MFA theoretical way. None of this is felt, none of this is interesting. Did you want to know but more the thing, about the very a single things, character in this film?
1: The very time things. a
0: character came into the thing, did you want to know more about them?
1: <laughs> the very things though that you're criticizing,
0: yeah.
1: Uh the description of everything in the room. To me, I like that kind of thing because I think that this is a character who is so completely empty that texture is all she can really, you know, even focus on when she walks somewhere. That you know how a sweater feels or how a picture look or whether a frame was handmade or not. Like that's literally the only thing she can do anymore is have an opinion on the way the world is. And again, you're right. She is someone who is not a person she's not like a functioning person in the world and there's nothing that you could say about her that would be appealing or interesting she's
0: not anything in the world she's a very unconvincing literary creation she's not anything none of this is felt in the book all of it's purely theoretical. You're saying I can't argue with it because the book, what you're saying, is what the book wants you to get. It's funny because there is a theoretical true.
1: failure. There is a theoretical failure in this book, although I don't, I don't agree that it's the character. I think the theoretical thing, and again, to bring up my good buddy, my my also my wife, Jordana Kalman, something that she has always been interested. My in. My wife talks That's about awesome. all the time is the uh, usurping of female art by men. You know that that men, you know. She, she liked to bring up, you know, the Suspiria remake that took all of the Francesca Woodman imagery and things like that. And, um, you know, just uses it for whatever, for their own thing, you know, that, you know, women's art really is only good for men to then appropriate in some way. I loved the idea that Aphrodite's pictures were then kind of usurped and taken over by this other character, Denny Ahern, who we don't meet until the end, but it's this guy who was in her commune, and he, after she had her success, he decided, hey, I'm a photographer too. And, you know, she became an alcoholic and stopped doing photographs. And then he ended up becoming the big cheese in the area. You know, the guy who went out and did all this art that was supposedly so much more in tune with like the environment and like new and and, and moved beyond the borders that she wasn't willing to go. I liked that the book was heading in that direction. And then it kind of just stops heading in that direction at some point because, you know, Cass, has to go out of her way to say, well, this is a guy who actually was willing to, you know, to go beyond the borders. So to take it further. So it kind of didn't actually become about that. I thought that was the direction it was going in and it kind of dropped the ball on that. So that I found disappointing. I feel like she set up a lot of ideas that were heading in a direction and then just kind of didn't, you know, just kind of dropped. And when you say the ending was when it started working for you, I think that's interesting because the climax was my least favorite part of the book. I thought, you know, the big chase at the end and the, you know, the uh, big cinematic death. Well, the chase of the, the and the boat and stuff like sucks. The yeah, chase and the stuff boat stuff sucks.
0: So I just mean when he gets to when, when he she appears gets, when yeah. she gets to his house and has to spring the 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 girl has I to thought, save
1: the girl who's been kidnapped by yeah, him. and yes. that's like two chapters. That stuff's good, yeah.
0: But the yeah. boat and everything with the rest of it, it also doesn't know when to end. There's a good four chapters past when you want it to be over. When it's just going through a bunch of bullshit. I, I dare you to have Jordy read this book. Jordy's eyes would roll so far in the back of her head. She would, she would, I, I Jordy would fucking hate this book because I know the kind of people Jordy hates.
1: <laughs> You're probably right. I would really be curious to hear what, you, well, I'm going to make her read. It. I'm going to find out, you know, what her thoughts on it. Are. And I would love to see hear her, hear her eyes rolling as she's reading it on the couch, you know. We should Definitely.
0: do a revisited episode with this. Also, don't tell her what my opinion is. Because right. she'll just, she'll just oppose my opinion, no matter what it is. <laughs> she'll just take the opposite side of whatever I've thought.
1: No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell her, but, uh, it's, it's an interesting, to, it's interesting to where this protagonist of the book, Cass Neri, she, uh, you know, spends a, spends a couple days at Aphrodite's big house. She sees the originals of these photographs that, uh, you know, Aphrodite considers, um, Uh, you know kind of perverted by the printing editions of them the book edition she says you know no one's really seen these pictures if they haven't seen them right in front of them which is interesting because I never think of photography like that I always think of paintings like that you know if you haven't actually witnessed the painting in front of you you
0: haven't seen shit
1: exactly whereas photographs I always think well you know how different can a photograph look in a book as opposed to right in front of you but um, that was interesting but then it comes down to Aphrodite you know has kind of drunkenly completely dismissed Cass. she's called her an asshole and no talent and someone who is a thief who stole her base, her themes and kind of you know done shit with them and then she ends up when she finds cast sneaking around her house uh trying to find some of her other photography that never got released or her hidden works of art or trying to connect what happened in this commune to what's going on now she ends up you know they end up grappling with each other and then after he falls and dies by hitting her head uh, you know on a like a wood stove. It's wood stove yeah in her bedroom and that is kind of just on top of the book for the rest of the time where it's like you know Cass has been directly involved with this person's death and not only does not feel remorse about it but like grabs her conica and starts snapping pictures because she's obsessed with you know dead bodies and people dying and the whole reason she came up here was to get a picture of the legendary Aphrodite. And now here she is taking pictures of her as she's actively dying. This is something that, you know, you should not be able to come back from, right? I mean, this is where she turns into not the hero, certainly, anymore. If she had any well, kind if of it, an if active... it had
0: learned any lessons from Burnt Orange Heresy, this is when the book would get interesting.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, it's also, but, I've got but, to but point the out, we're talking, about, we're talking about the character names. This
0: book is just so over- it's just that MFA style. It's People are named after Cassandra who sees too much, you know, and Aphrodite, you know. It's just, it can't resist overloading meaning into sure. characters' a names. Former
1: rock star named Lucian and a, yeah. a hippie chick named Hannah Meadows. I mean, yeah, sure.
0: It just can't resist <laughs> overloading that shit into it. And also it's super over-researched. There's so much photography talk in this. And she can't stop going into all of the details of photographic process that she's learned even when it doesn't matter and is not interesting it's just it's got the the description disease um where it's just so over detailed in its descriptions and you just feel like her notebook of research getting vomited out onto the page like getting pulled up and the letters are getting shook out of the notebook and landing on a different page on this one
1: yeah, I know. But I, I like reading about dark room development and things like that. So like, I didn't mind any of that stuff. But the point I was trying to make was that once this happens and you're right, if it's the, something like the burnt or, orange heresy, you know exactly where you stand with this character, but then she keeps being like the investigator at that point, And she keeps being the person who's going to ultimately rescue this teenage girl from the grasp of this evil artist She's you know, supposed to be the good guy islands. hero
0: unambiguously by the end of the book. She's supposed to be a good guy hero and it's supposed to be setting up a whole series. There's yeah. no question in my mind. That's what it is. It's I'm not sure if it's part one, uh, if this is the first cast book ever, but it's unquestionably setting up the series and she ends with like an eye patch and, you know, a plucky assistant, you know, kind
1: of <laughs> yeah. thing. It's so that was bizarre. That was something that I didn't expect and thought was strange. Although again, I did appreciate the twist that you know, we find out that this Aphrodite uh, Camistos person is not really the the classic absent artist type figure that we see in these books. It's really this other guy, uh, Denny Ahern, who shows up at the end to be sort of a ghoulish Christopher Lee type of villain. But I'll, I'll say a subplot I did like, though. I mean, you're right; most of the characters I didn't care about or didn't know, didn't want to know anything more about. I did like though Griffin, the son of Aphrodite, who's hanging around. I enjoyed his James Spader-esque, you know, sleazy intelligence, you know, I could kind <laughs> of like get some, get some fun out of imagining that kind of a scenario with that character. So there was, there was stuff to enjoy. That's interesting because
0: his name was Griffin. I pictured this kid. I knew in middle school named Matt Griffin, who was like a, like a doughy nerd. I kept on picturing <laughs> as Griffin this whole time. I'm just realizing when you said James Spader is like James Spader. I didn't. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess she was describing like the fleck of green in his eyes. And you were supposed to get like a hot dude vibe from him. But I was just picturing <laughs> yeah. good old Matt Griffin. Super well, great guy. Spader's I pretty
1: doughy life. these days, to be fair.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Modern era James Spader. <laughs> hey, let me ask you, we talked about the 9-11 stuff. I think we both agree that's kind of an insanely poor taste and does not work. Right. Do you agree with me on that?
1: Yeah, it feels like for sure.
0: It feels like very poor taste. Stakes raising. How did you feel about the rape scene? To me, that felt again very woman in a fridge, inconsequential stakes raising, not related to the narrative except that she uses it for motivation later. It felt like pretty, pretty, pretty tasteless in terms of if you're going to criticize work for having. For exploiting sexual violence to goose your story and the stakes in some way, this is the definition of that, right?
1: Yeah, I it didn't work for me. I, I it's it's strange that what she sees in the teenage girl at the end, who she saves, you know, the teenage girl is ready to be killed by this artist and used for his his you know uh, his his artwork, masterpiece, his photography. yeah, his his cult based in in indiscreet. Uh, generic cult based you know photography
0: yeah i don't want to make fun of that that stuff is the stuff i like
1: so yeah, i think yeah. if it
0: could have been as interesting it is as it is when it's dealing with denny ahern then i would have liked the book you know
1: when it's dealing with like the the uh albumen that he uses to create the glass negatives the egg whites
0: no i hate Isn't all it? that it's too much <laughs> it's too much it could have been it could again simonon would have had that in a sentence you know it would have been he was using an archaic photographic process that involved egg whites, cyanide, and glass thing. Instead, she has pages of it, yeah. you know? Yeah,
1: well, the thing I had mentioned on our, our mini-episode about and references
0: malignant, to her NYU professor. Yeah, sorry, go on.
1: In our mini-episode about malignant, I mentioned that there is a very giallo kind of uh, element thrown in here. And it's at the last minute, but it's describing how Denny Ahern is insane because of mercury poisoning from the mercury that he uses to create these unique photographs. <laughs> I like the idea of, you know, this tainted villain who's crazy because of some kind of chemical process that is, you know, Im- imbued his art, you know, something that literally he uses to make his art drove him insane. And that's, well, that's why he's murdering yeah, people.
0: That's one of the great aspects of in, in hallmarks of the absent artist genre is they've created an artwork that's so mind blowing that if you see it, just your brain will melt, you know, yeah, that right. I love this artwork. That's like, even beyond Aphrodite Comestos, world famous, uh, always regarded as one of the greatest uh, series of photographs of all time. In this shit, it blows that crap out of the water. You know, <laughs> I love that about yeah. that. That actually, when I was reading it, reminded me of um when I was in college. I went and visited my my friend Anna in Denmark for a little while, and we went out with her aunt, who was an aunt restorationist restorationist too. Um, A church in this small town. It was like a medieval church where the ceiling paintings had been done by a schizophrenic, right? And they had been painted over. So they were removing the paint and restoring the ceiling paintings that had been done on a church ceiling by a schizophrenic in the medieval era. And it's like, whoa, that sounds fucking awesome. I can't wait to see this. So we went out there and looked at them and they're just like squiggles. They weren't like that great at all. Like they were fine. Yeah. And that's yeah. always in these books. The absent artist thing is the problem is always like, this shit's going to blow your mind. And then like, you, you oh, can't course. show the it or talk about it, it. on film, yeah.
1: exactly. You can't show what it is because it's not going to exactly blow your mind. Or even I know, talking I love that, about I love that aspect about this ship genre, of course. Yeah.
0: Even talking about it in this book is like, they just sound like photos to me. They don't. They sound like <laughs> some mixed media photos. They honestly don't sound that that mind-blowing. You know? sure, sure. I know you're sure. telling me, oh man, it's like the Mister Show sketch where they're describing things to the blind woman, like, oh man, if you could see this sunset, man, it's it's fucking crazy.
1: <laughs> I, I know. I yeah, I'm with you on that. Oh, I but love for it. me. I love but, it. <laughs> but but for but, yeah, but for me too, all the name dropping also to give context to people of like you know, well, if you think Joel Peter Wicken, you know, crossed the border, well, fuck that. I'm tra- I'm here to tell you this is what's actually crossing the border. I understand that like, that's what that exists for. I don't think she's trying to be cool by, you know, name dropping untitled film stills and things like that. I think you she really just wants so, to give really? you a frame of reference. Well, to know what she's talking about, I guess. I mean, if she had said, you know, she loved all the great photographers, like, you know, uh, William Wegman, you know, and like, people are going to be like, "What the fuck are you talking but about?" But don't
0: you think? But there's so little specificity that there could have been, if there was even one reference to something that's not the one hundred one basic, you know, New York punk transgressive art in the seventies. There, there's no personality to it. It's it's the starter kit at all times. Don't you think that that if it were trying to be a real if Kastnery was supposed to be a real artist with real opinions, she would have expressed something beyond the most basic Wikipedia level understanding of what punk in New York was. Wouldn't Maybe, that, have, wouldn't that have done something it, you know? to, <laughs> yeah, but, but she, I'm sure she could have put some of that endless description towards describing this shit that's obscure yeah. rather than over describing everything else. And then having, you know, uh, She put on a P.I.L. CD, you know, or whatever stand-in for, and then we don't get any description of what that music is or what it sounds like. You have to know what all these references are,
1: you know. I I do find it amusing that the evil villain puts on Harry Nelson and is dancing around to it while she's saving the girl. I mean, that kind of stuff's funny. Uh,
0: I also also feel like there's a a person's identified as being bad because they're listening to Pink Floyd at one point. I will say this book. I think this book actually. I'm. I think it actually has to be like a middle-aged person or older who wrote this book, because there's so much of the um, punks hate fucking hippies aspect to this book, and just mm. like the all everything the stupid fucking hippies stood for, punks have a natural allergic reaction to. And I don't. I don't think somebody who's young and like their mid twenties understood like the natural like punk antipathy. For, like, of course, the villain is like a hippie cult leader in this book. You know, like, who else would it be? Right. Who else would the punks have hated than somebody who went to an island and told women, like, we're going to be free. Now take off all your clothes. You know what I mean? Like, of course, yeah. that's who the punks hate most of all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just this weird boomer fight. All right. So I'll talk about, I'll, I'll speak to the writing a little bit. And I was also kind of nervous to get into it for a different reason than you. But but kind of the same, because I didn't want to sound condescending when I said, I read lots of different kinds of books, and it doesn't have to be faux gras every single time, you know, like I certainly appreciate when a book is blow your mind brilliant writing, and I love, love, love to read those kind of books. But I need, you know, something that's not going to blow my mind every once in a while. And I like movie novelizations, and I like some YA books and things like that, like reading comics these things, you know, aren't even a palate cleanser necessarily. It's just something that I like getting different. Yeah. You know, you're just kind of getting a different degree of talent every once in a while. So I don't mind when I, I admire reading a book like this. I admire the construction of, of paragraphs specifically where it's a little more, you know, it is a little more formula. It's a little more something that, you know, doesn't really take a whole lot of originality and you know stuff that you know sings similar to things you've read before, but I like it because I can kind of focus more on construction. Does that make sense? Does that sound way too condescending to this book? Because for me, it's it makes me appreciate the writing in a different way. It's not something that you know I can dive deep into it and just kind of like let this writing flow all over me. It's something that's like. I actually can get on this writing's level and kind of appreciate you know how she decided to end this end this chapter, and then you know how this description kind of plays out. I like the mechanics of the writing when it's something that's not super you know blow your mind prose heavy.
0: I think the writing is objectively a good writing in the sense of good use of language. It's objectively. The sentences are well written. The sentences are well put together. I'm sure it's structured well enough. Although if you're not interested in the plot, it doesn't matter how well structured it is. My complaint about the writing isn't that it's well written. It's that it is personality free and lacking an artistic voice. And I have a very hard time. I, of course, like not looking for foie gras all the time you know i i like all the same things you like i like genre fiction i like pulp novels i like pornography i like comic books uh all of those kind of different things i like you know i you know i'm not reading superhero comic books but i love all of the ec stuff and you know that's the kind of comics i like and certainly those are not these amazingly well written graphic novel foie gras versions of a uh, Of of literature, I think, but they all have personality and they all have perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's just a matter of not having enough personality for me. It doesn't have an artistic perspective. It all feels sort of secondhand. You know, all of this feels secondhand to me. It just doesn't feel like this author has any voice. And it feels like it's trying to do a lot of name-dropping to conjure a voice that it doesn't have you know
1: that's interesting i for me it's you know more of a disappointment that it doesn't commit you know that again you know you get so close to the ending and you're still not sure where it's going exactly what direction it's going to go to and thinking well the commune is obviously a red herring there's obviously going to be something else Uh, this guy toby maybe he's going to turn out to be a sinister guy after all maybe the non-artist Teasdale. Maybe Toby Teasdale is the you know the the non artist character who's actually you know a horrible person or whatever, but it just got like you said it kind of it it turns out being the crazy hippie cult leader all along as we suspected, uh, and having this very morally amb- ambiguous character who has had a hand in in this woman's death. Even if you want to argue that she didn't technically kill her, she's certainly hiding her involvement in it and hiding literally the the role of film that she took of this woman's dead body at the end I'm not ready to be like yeah she did it you know she's she saved the girl and she saved the day and now she's got a cool eye patch and she's you know she's going off into the sunset to a new life
0: I will also say this book tells you everything it you know it violates the principle show not tell and there's so much I kept thinking reading it like this would be so much more interesting if this started with Cass on her way up to Maine and didn't tell us all about her failed career before. And we learned through her interaction with other people and seeing her book on the shelf and seeing that she's a fuck up who can't even afford a hotel room. If we learned her story that way, this would be a lot more interesting instead of we get whatever it is, 50 pages, 75 pages of load up on the front about, hey, her life is ruined. This has all been a mess. She had all these other relationships. Here's the whole story. And now go, you know, if we had this had all been revealed through the course of the novel uh, or through the course of the plot of the plot proper, because there's no plot at the beginning. The plot of the book is not There's a woman named Cassandra Neary who starts out and has a literary career and it fails. No, this is all preamble. If it got rid of all the preamble and went just to its story, I think it would be revealed in a much more interesting way. I think that alone would have been enough to hold my attention to kind of figure out who Cass Neary is and how she's ended up where she is, which is, you know, basically unable to afford a hotel room headed someplace unfamiliar you wouldn't even have to change that much you could just cut the front off and the book would improve improve by leaps and bounds you know
1: i think you're on to something there i think that the preamble definitely is an attempt to like set up a series as like you said you know like this is this is the character i'm introducing her i spent some time you know letting you know who she is and where she's coming from now go off into the adventure you know uh, you're right if it had been a little more organic you know kind of see you know seeping through little parts later on and there were certainly a lot of opportunities to bring up you know her past as she's kind of going through these experiences that might have been so yeah you might be onto something there i'm with you
0: it's also this book is also the dialogue is very is very bad in the sense that Uh, It's all very explanatory. I wouldn't go so far as to say expositional, but it's definitely anytime somebody's asked about something, they say, oh, Jim, Jim runs the local motel and Jim works there from night. Oh, Lucian, Lucian used to be a DJ and now he has a house with a lot of money and just everybody talks.
1: Yeah, I definitely prefer I definitely preferred the moments where she's doing more investigating, where she finds the bus in the woods and, you know, finds the old books and things like that or finds the image of of griffin that she finds early on where she wants to know the story behind that photograph Mm -hmm. which is something that doesn't really get resolved that's something that i was really interested in and that's when she came out as more of a character when she is actually curious about things and finding things and actually having an active investigative personality in the book so i'm with you on that the dialogue was uh just a little bit of a slog
0: the the writing doesn't have any sense of what to withhold from an audience and what to give them it just doesn't have the faintest sense of how to be mysterious in that way how to be existentially mysterious not just story mysterious you know yeah Yeah. it it doesn't it just doesn't it's just not good enough this book it's just not good enough you know Mm -hmm. yeah and and the reason it's not good enough is because i think the author doesn't have it That's really what I think about this book is that this author, whatever it is, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine earlier today who's a writer who's like very successful TV writer. And I was talking about Stephen King where every time I read Stephen King, I'm like, God, this guy's an awful writer. But I'll be like, but he's fucking got it. Whatever it is, like he's got (laughs) it. And wouldn't that be amazing if I'm me as a writer who wants to write, I would love to be Stephen King. I don't want to write well-constructed sentences. I want to have it. You know, and Stephen King's got it and you don't sure. actually need to be good to have got it. That's like the <laughs> crazy thing about it is that he's he's got that thing that works on audiences and you don't need to know how to write a good sentence to have it, you know, and that's almost magic. That's like the fantasy is again, like punk music. You don't even have to know how to play guitar to make an amazing classic album. You know what I mean? That's right. the dream is that you somehow, Just have a unique enough of a voice and perspective that you don't even know have to know how to play fucking bass or sing and make one of the most revered albums of all time, you know, and and this 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 book, the the author just doesn't have it. And I'm really sorry to say that and I really hate to hammer an author who's not famous and who I'm sure is a fucking very nice person and to hammer them with such specificity speculative specificity on my part, watch me be wrong. And it's like, you know, Elizabeth has a pseudonym for like a wall street dude who's been working for a lawyer for whatever, <laughs>
1: you know what I mean? Well, who the fuck knows? Maybe she finds it. I'm going to schedule for the next five podcasts, <laughs> the follow-up uh, cast books for us to read maybe if she maybe. finally gets finds it down down the. you path know what somewhere. would be
0: fun for a later episode let's read one of her novelizations you like let's do that yeah, yeah yeah so i can get a glimpse into what it what it's good can i tell you one more this is this these are a little bit uh these are my two two very nitpicky things with the book can i tell you what they are
1: Anne and in the king that's the novelization we're going to read but go ahead
0: <laughs> i'd read that um fisher cats that they keep talking about like thinking and the implication is it's a red herring like maybe these fisher cats are committing the murders right Mm -hmm. people getting lost have you ever seen a fisher cat
1: yeah they're tiny right
0: they're like fucking ferrets they're like big ferrets they i bet the biggest one in the world weighs 15 pounds they're like three feet long they're like it's like it's like if you were supposing like maybe this mongoose committed these murders in the book you'd be like what it's very strange that they uh that they that she keeps trying to position and at one point she's going to get confronted by a fisher cat and you're like oh no it's going to get her but mm-hmm. if you've seen these things it's like it's like the the fucking
1: they're slightly fair... bigger than squirrels <laughs> well it's
0: like in the big lebowski when the ferret gets dropped in the bathtub with them it's that Alarmant. kind of yeah yeah that kind of of animal um which is kind of it's weird it's weird it it,
1: it is and that's another kind of just weird sort of throwaway thing where you know it's like this something supernatural about this animal appearing in a tree and hissing at her and a a human kind of voice yeah where is this going to lead answer nowhere (laughs) not really another sort of red herring that's sort of thrown at you late in the book the, uh,
0: the other thing that I that I found completely absurd is at one point she steals a, a drunk guy's keys at the bar because she wants his keys. Right. Yeah. And then for the rest of the book, everybody's like, you hear about this guy who lost his keys? Very suspicious. You wouldn't know anything about a pair of lost keys, would you? Like this drunk loses his <laughs> keys and the next day the sheriff's on it. It's very fucking ridiculous. Like,
1: oh, We could dig into some of the side care, the townies that, you know, she runs a foul But
0: Just the idea that like he lost his keys and, and it's the talk of the town. These <laughs> lost keys to the point where the sheriff is literally like, and he lost his keys, but you wouldn't know anything about that. Would you? It's like yeah. his lost keys. <laughs> what the, what the fight literally like every character she's encountered is on like the case of the lost keys have yeah. you lost your keys would anybody you know know that you had lost your keys
1: certainly a very poorly handled crime scene <laughs> by those police as well when they showed up after Aphrodite is dead um and the and the kids who you know hate her for some reason
0: because she's the out of towner who committed she's some the murder
1: weird junkie who yeah wants to take their local teenage girls away i don't know but yeah and so we Certainly there's more to kind of criticize if we get to the kind of minor characters.
0: Yeah. The townies, the like angry townies who want to rough you up are very, what is it? Superman three where that happens Two. Superman two. They're very, uh, very that kind of character. These dudes who just show up in Carhartt jackets. She loves talking about Carhartt jackets and are like going to beat her up because McKenzie's missing. Mm hmm. You know, well, but the, that's but that's shit I can get over. If the book yeah. is good and that's those things are the problem, I would have gotten over all this. I would have been into the Fisher cat stuff if if the book was good.
1: Yeah. You know? Is this the least your least favorite thing that we've read for the podcast so far? You should have uh, to have a list in front of you to know to remember what we've been talking about.
0: Yeah, we generally read stuff I like. The only other book I can remember disliking is um the religion. It, yeah, is the yeah, the religion is not very good. And right hand red was infuriated me, but I love that book. Yeah. And that's, you know, I adore that book, even though I wanted to hurl it across the room. Um, yeah, I guess the I guess the the religion is not that great. The religion's very similar to this. I think this and the religion are the same. They're sort of intended to be popular thrillers that are very much of their era and the style of their era. And have and have no recognizable authorial voice, and that's their biggest detriment. And it makes them both feel like they go on forever, pointlessly, uh, without any way of holding my interest.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, it was hard for me to get back into the book when I had set it down. I will admit that.
0: Yeah, you know, I feel bad. I don't. I don't enjoy being this negative about this book for some reason. It really. It doesn't feel good to 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 uh, so to read this book and say I think this author should stop writing. It doesn't feel good, you know. It, sure. it really doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like I have a right to say it. It doesn't feel like uh, it doesn't feel fair in some way to be this cruel to this book, you know. Which I think is ultimately like a perfectly tasteful and modest book with its heart in the right place I think you know
1: mm-hmm. yeah no I think it's going to be honest I, think I mean you I know, don't know the... it's it's definitely <laughs> you don't think of... it's going to be a...
0: <laughs> well this is definitely a book where I'm a creative person who's a writer and has produced artworks and it does feel a little more I think I identify with it I feel like I know what it's like to fail like this You know what I mean? I feel like what I, what I know what it's like to do something not interesting. That's not good enough. That has people suggesting to me that maybe I shouldn't be doing it at all. Suggesting to me that maybe I shouldn't be doing it at all, you know? And I, and I, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Maybe I'm identifying with this book more than I thought I was.
1: (laughs) Maybe. So let's, but we should, we should think about following up on it with Jordy. Maybe after she, she reads it, we'll see what her, (laughs) let will see what her thoughts are after she gives yeah, it a try.
0: and and a novelization to i think give it fair be fair to it let's move on to our
1: desserts yes what's your dessert
0: i picked for my dessert pairing the house with laughing windows by the great pupia body right
1: one of my favorites
0: this is this is i think the greatest absent artist movie
1: that are in the mouth of madness yeah
0: yeah, I think this is better than in the mouth of madness. I
1: do. I love them both. I couldn't compare.
0: It's an Italian horror movie from 1976. I think it's a pretty, a pretty classic uh, example of a giallo, uh, right?
1: It's the kind of giallo I like for sure. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I, th- I think it's not like malignant is what I'm saying. That I think no one is going to come <laughs> after you uh, to uh, to to if you call this a giallo. And it's about a uh, an artist. Who is uh, brought in to restore a fresco of, uh, is it St. Sebastian? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and the fresco was painted by a mysterious artist, as it's always done. And sort of the, the whole thing is the absent artist movie, coming across the history of the artist, the history of insanity tied up in the artwork, the brutalities and the murders that rise up in its wake. It's a great little mystery film. Uh, It's it's a great absent artist film. It's again, it's about an artwork that just drives you insane with its greatness. Like a lot, all of the absent artist movies, the artist has got to go someplace unfamiliar. It's about heading someplace, the road films in that way generally. And and searching out this artist and searching out the history and it's it's great. Uh, Pupi Avati I think is a very underrated. He's one of those directors that I think of as being the great Italian horror directors. Go Argento, Pupi Avati, and then the rest of those guys to me, you know. And I'm always shocked
1: that he's not. Well, Michel Soavi I would throw up there.
0: Soavi, yeah, Soavi's great. I I think so. Is Soavi greater than Bava? You know, I think that there's a lot Personally, of...
1: Personally, I would say 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I just mean like I hold those two. There's other great ones that are great Italian hard directors. You yeah. know, I just think that those two are above the rest. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, I'm with you. I look, I, Soave, you're right. I love Soave. I don't know. I guess, I guess I'm guess, i just uh, digging in on that when I adore Soave as much as I adore Poopy Avani, certain, certainly, but... Um, but I I'm always surprised that he's overlooked and house with laughing windows is a great place to start with him too it's one of his more accessible ones you know because he he gets weird too he's a (laughs) he's a guy who really gets weird and uh and I think it's also you can if you watch that movie after reading this book you will go oh that's what this book should have been you know, and yeah. I think there's a lot of them. I could have picked the the Ninth Gate novel also, which yeah, is sure. one, that you know, Club Dumas, where, Club Dumas. Mm-hmm. where if you read that book, you would go, oh, that's what this book should have been, you know? Right,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I said I didn't want to really get into the absent artist stuff just because I've got a bigger work that I really want to tackle someday about yeah. it, but uh, I guess you could say a, a defense of Cass as a, as a character is that the one making the journey, the one going to see the artist in these, there's always personality-free. You know that there's somebody who is either a failed artist or uh, an adjacent, an artist adjacent kind of person, like a restorer in this movie. You know, yeah, or uh, um, a detective, you know, who's you know tra- chasing after this uh, or author a who's disappeared. Yeah. Exactly, someone like that, or an art student. Um, so you could say, you know, the kind of lack of personality given to cast, you know, sort of in line with that sort of thing, although. If you're trying to set up, you know, a series of books with this as your hero character that you want to read more about, it's a failure. But, you know, through <laughs> through the scope of the absent artist subgenre, maybe that's something you can use as a defense of the character a little bit in the story. Yeah. But House with Laughing Win- uh, Windows is just a phenomenal movie. Couldn't endorse it more. Yeah, it's great. What is your dessert pairing, Mr. Uh, urban photographer who shoots gritty subjects? Gets in over his head when he discovers a secret ancient cult. And Gettys. What else am I going? What else am I gonna recommend? But uh Ryui Kitamura's Midnight Meat Train, oh, of course. Oh
0: yes.
1: <laughs> Based on the story by Clive Barker. Uh if you haven't seen it, you know you will not know that it's about Bradley Cooper. Check, get into the New York subways because some giant Viddy Jones-looking motherfucker is. <laughs> killing people pounding their heads in with a freaking meat hammer and what the hell's up with this i'm not going to give any of it away go see the midnight meat train if you haven't already <laughs> is it's there a, a
0: special train at midnight that's just for vinnie jones to slaughter people on and yeah, why and midnight why is meat the train. government letting this happen how deep does this cover-up go? Only an intrepid journalist like Bradley Cooper can get to the bottom of. Photo the midnight Train. Midnight. Yes,
1: well, he's seeking. He's seeking the gritty underground of New York, and this is what he finds. Anyone who's ever lived in New York knows if you go too far into the underground, you'll find Vinnie Jones with a giant meat hammer to brain you to death.
0: Uh, it's a great one. That's 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 uh, some true. A lot of movies get. Uh, get called genuinely bizarre that's a genuinely bizarre movie that's one of oh, those 100 that yeah. even after you've seen it you're like wow who <laughs> who was thinking what when they made this who's I genuinely this?
1: bizarre as malignant is 100 percent straightforward
0: <laughs> yes it's uh it's real something that's a great pairing that's a great pairing i think that we would uh well, That's, I think, I may go watch Midnight Meat Train as soon as we're done recording. John Cripps, <laughs> yeah, maybe you like...
1: Elizabeth Hand would be interested in trying a novelization of Midnight Meat <laughs> Train. I don't know, maybe sensibilities will meet in an interesting way.
0: John, could you thank our patrons and tell them what they get?
1: Thank you for to all, thank you so much to all our Patreon subscribers. Uh, you know, you get uh, early access to all of our podcasts, every single one of our episodes, you get to hear it first you get special series like our fire from the fire where we have special guests come on to decide which filmmakers uh, movies they're going to save from oblivion, which are always super interesting, very cool interviews with very cool people, uh, filmmakers, film writers, uh, and our back catalog of those of course is always available to you. We have uh, cool videos and commentaries, audio commentaries, always trying to like give you something extra because we appreciate your support so much.
0: Yeah. Every month, at least one Patreon exclusive bonus and every episode gets early access for Patreon subscribers. Yeah. And we want to thank you so much for subscribing. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do run the website without it. And we certainly wouldn't be able to pay our writers. Um, John, anything else this evening? Have we come up Every, with our with our sign-off yet? Our signature sign-off?
1: <laughs> nobody but our Patreon subscribers are going to know what we think of Malignant. I can tell you that much.
0: It's true. The Malignant mini-episode might be our most valuable Patreonic resource.
1: <laughs> I uh, have a fun ride on the Midnight Beach.
0: <laughs> this closes our meeting of the Trouser Society. <laughs>